He scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. Now, from Delray Beach, Florida, here's Bruno DiGiulio. And welcome to the 2021 version of the Racing with Bruno podcast. We've got a great show, the second part of our show that we put together for you. And got two great guests, Barry Meadow of TR Publishing and Jude Feld from PopeJude.com. His reports, former trainer, former HRRN radio show host. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing the second part. And I know you have too. And let me bring in Ron Flatter, hey. who's, a, who's, who's a main cog of this whole uh, operations. What did you do for New Year's Eve? Joe and I had wonderful Indian food. We <laughs> Joe <watched>. did too. <laughs> uh, well, no, that's a little too spicy for his little yeah, tummy. I, was say. I gave him something the other day, and it didn't go too well. <laughs> so, um, but uh, no, he's. Um, uh, we have a playpen for dogs here, and it's beautiful because it's astroturf, it's gated, <laughs> so I don't have to worry about him running off anywhere. Astral. I can chase him. We can play ball. We can do a lot of different things. So I took him down there for New Year's Eve. Um, Says I'm not going to hang out with other people. I, we talked about it that in a past uh, podcast, and I'm just not going to, you know, do that. And uh, just hanging out with him and let him run around and watch him being happy chasing squirrels. That's what it means to me. Yeah, it's better, you know, astroturf. Well, you know, nothing, nothing. I says... know it is astro. He doesn't get astro toe on it though. <laughs> yeah, I don't he doesn't think. get turf. You would have to get astro claw. Oh God! I well, yeah. You, I, I, we went out in the desert uh, to get away from the artillery fire that started around sunset, and then went out and just got away from it. Just got away from it. Away from people. Away from the nonsense. It's, there's a lot of nonsense, even during a pandemic in Las Vegas. So it's good to get away from that and all the guys smacking pamphlets on the strip and all that. So off we went. And here we are in 2021, and we got Jude and Barry. And uh, you know what the the cool thing is coming up here? We get questions from the audience. One of the things that you have on this podcast nobody else has is an audience that is participating, like a studio audience on the Zoom call. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to do those, isn't it? You know, um, I've enjoyed it, and I thought it was a really, um, it was a fun uh, Zoom podcast, so to speak. And uh, I thought the the, I thought the, uh, the guests were fantastic. But you know what? Why don't we let our listeners listen to it and tell us what they think? Jude Feld, former trainer, you having been on the other end training these fast, uh, you had you had a really. Uh, you had a fantastic owner, Mr. Marino, and he had a stallion called Order. And you won a number of races with first-time starters. If you had to put your finger on, on what was the one key factor in you having that horse ready, what would it have been? Uh, well, those horses were, were pretty smart and uh, very precocious, so it helped. And we kind of stepped up. I, I never was a great first-time starter trainer, but because we were standing the stallion, we had to make a splash. So we kind of stepped it up a little bit. We, we got a little quicker with the works and a little bit more serious. But I think the, the main thing is when you have a bunch of quality babies, that elevates the whole group. I mean, you see guys like Todd Pletcher and Chad Brown. They win a lot of baby races at Saratoga. 
And the reason is they're matching those horses up in the morning. And the good ones are forcing the lesser ones up the ladder. You know, they, they make them run. They make the lesser ones run a little bit harder and be a little bit fitter in order to keep up because the horses are competitive and babies are super competitive. I mean, probably more than than any other group of horses. When you get a bunch of two year olds in, they all want to be the king or the queen. That, that's what they want to do. They want to go out there and they want to beat the other ones. It's really a, a, an amazing thing to watch. It's a lot of fun. And they, and, and they and, force and shoot. Jude, can you discourage a two-year-old by getting them beat? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. You always try to match them up with horses that they can be competitive with. But what happens when you have a nice group is they all work together at some point, you know, they and and the the better ones will make the other ones work a little bit harder. And they don't they don't have to, I mean, you're not out there trying to get them you know, beat 20 lengths or whatever. I, I mean, you, you just want them to work together. But just that that togetherness and working with a good horse makes a big, big difference. I've always found, and I've said this a lot of times, um, I'll have a, a, a teamwork of the good maiden special with the lesser horse, like a maiden claimer. And the maiden special is beating up on this maiden claimer who's trying he just can't work with that main special. Now they go into their own respective races. The main special is going to go against horses that are about his talent. They're all like him. And now you have the main claimer that's going to run against his friends, like Julio used to say, running with their friends. Now you run them with their friends, but it's almost like a drop in class, isn't it, Jude? Yeah. Now he's dropping in class, and, you can, and, 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 and that's why I've always felt like I'm going to bet on the loser of that team of those two because those that horse is running against cheaper horses and he's dropping in class where the main special against could be going against graded stakes material. Yeah, if they put him in the proper spot, you know that that's that's the whole thing. Which you know where they're running him, so that 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 gives you an edge when when you know that a horse worked with a stakes horse or a, a really nice older course it's a good workhorse or whatever you know you make you make note of that and and you read about it in your in your sheets and and you know i mean it's right there for anybody to see and that that's how you get those horses that you know pay 12 14 16 18 30 on on debut because you're you're paying attention to that and that's that's where the edge comes in and another point of it too is when you're watching them you're actually watching the way they move through their joints. And sometimes you'll get two horses that are equal. And one of them is a main special because he's not crooked. <laughs> right. He can move through. And then the other one, you know, and he moves, he's like, you know, doing one of these. But he can still run. He can still do the, the six furlongs. He can still do the things that he needs to do. Um, um, so don't ever discount – a maiden claimer that has been getting beaten up by, by a possibly a main special. And if it, because that main claimer may be the one that wins out of that, that team, not the maiden special because he's going against betters. Uh, Ron, you got anything for our, our, our guests? I'm wondering, uh, as one of the things that Bruno has taught me in the time that we've been, that I've been taking part in these zoom calls 
is that against all the optics and the figures and the statistics and all the research we may do is ultimately you still have to look at the horse and see what the horse has done. Uh, to that extent, for both of you guys, how, how much do, do you find yourself reinforcing that very point? Looking at the horse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The horse is going to be the most important thing. I mean, through all the other numbers and, you know, the one for 30s and the, this percent, the horse still matters. Oh, absolutely. I, I used to uh, give a talk every year to the University of Kentucky Horse Racing Club. And a lot of times, you know, it was it was mostly gals that were that were into riding horses and that. And they they'd come out to the farm and I'd give them a farm tour and they'd talk about handicapping. I'd print out PPs and explain it. And then when I was done with the, you know, doldrums of handicapping, I would tell them, listen, I could sit here for the next few weeks and explain this to you, and you're not going to really understand it until you get into it and start betting. I said, so I'm going to tell you how you win money at the track. I said, you girls all get on horses. You know what a good horse looks like. You know what an athletic horse looks like. I said, you will have more fun and have a better chance to make money if you go down to the paddock before every race and look at the horses and figure out which horse it is that you're, you would like your parents to buy you, okay? You go shopping in the paddock. You figure out which horse you want, and that's who you bet on. I said it doesn't matter what the price is on the board or what jockey's on. Just pick out the horse that you like, and you will do better then you will looking at speed figures and days since last race. I, that's for people like me that, you know, don't have a life for people like you <laughs> that, that know horses and love horses. Just go find, go find a horse you like and bet on that one. And that was my advice. Well, you Thanks. certainly have to, you certainly have to love horses to do this. They're not just uh, objects, you know. They're lived for for me. There's let's let's put it to you this way: some handicappers can't handicap without seeing the horse in the paddock, keeping notes on his warm ups, looking at changes. Is he wearing a, a tongue tie today? And he wasn't last time. Others wouldn't know a horse from a mule, uh, but you can handicap either way. I was more of the latter. I mean, I love horses. Even now, as I drive along, I see horse on the road i'll just stop my car and go pet the horse uh but for me it was more who is that horse as a racehorse what are his characteristics where does he like to run what kind of trip what kind of pace is he best at what is he does is he a game horse is he a trier and certainly trainers can tell you some horses are real triers and others you know could care less they're putting in an appearance kind of like office workers it's the same thing some are triers and they'll go the extra mile and others you know how quickly can I get out of here? So, uh, uh, no, well, wait a horse, Barry, Barry. Yeah. I don't think any of us, I don't think me, you or Jude, have, well, Jude maybe has, maybe you and I, 
when when's the last time we worked in an office well we work in an office every day to type up our notes and keep the statistics <laughs> and watch the replays and things like that hey bruno so, we're all in offices right now that's exactly right <laughs> for yeah. me COVID just brings me back to the old days when i was Ain't in my office the uh, all the yeah. time you know talking to nobody the whole day i didn't want anybody <laughs> coming to my office i'm watching hey there's a minute to post get out of here so uh, uh <laughs> it's not really that much of a change for me <laughs> And Barry, you brought up about the, the, the appearance and, and looking at horses and seeing things. There's a part in your book about first time front wraps. I've never seen any stats on this before. And it's on page 248. And I was that really I never had an opinion either way because I kind of knew why front wraps were all about and why they were on or off. But you kind of made it uh, kind of an interesting statistic there. Well, the, uh, uh, what we did is we had a survey of horses that were eased last time, and then they show up in front wraps next time. That was the study. Um, it was not a first-time starter. It was the first-time front wraps for horses. Uh, uh, first of all, we had horses that, were, that wore added front wraps last time, were eased, they only won 6% and lost 57 cents on a dollar. If they were eased last time, and today they had the front wraps after being eased, they still lost 29 cents on the dollar. So when a horse is, it was about horses that were eased. And when horses are eased, generally speaking, it's not a good thing next time. Even though a lot of people go off the horse, you think, well, the prices will be higher because the horse was just eased. Nobody's going to bet this horse. Well, they just don't win all that much. Usually there's some problem. Did you do any study on wraps at all? Uh, not for uh, first-time starters, because remember, for years, the, this this information has not been readily available at all tracks, uh, you know, and all the, the different ways of measuring these horses. Some tracks, uh, the chart makers don't even, you know, they miss them. And uh, for years, there was no indication that a horse had front wraps or not but certainly if a horse is adding front wraps that can't be a plus i think Jude would back me up on that unless it's a trainer that's just trying to hide uh, a problem that the uh, some clamor has and they always put all the horses in front wraps like some certain trainers do you also did work on uh, first time lasix and on equipment um anything that stood out to you or something that surprised you well this has changed now because a lot of places uh two-year-olds can't use lasix uh anymore or at least certainly not when they start uh but horses without first-time lasix did a lot worse than horses with first-time lasix for first-time starters having lasix was a big plus now of course there's a lot of controversy does lasix mask other drugs uh, we don't know i have no opinion on that but i do know that horses who had lasix for their first start, did better than horses who started without Lasix. Dude? Uh, yes? Uh, yep. <laughs> what, what do you, what do you oh, want to do? No, I, I'm sorry. What I, what, I, what I was trying to transition is, did you train a lot of your babies uh, to debut with Lasix or not Lasix? Uh, you know, Oh, if if they needed it, they got it. If they if they didn't, I I didn't like I'm I wasn't a blanket Lasix person, you know. Um, just uh, you know, if if they acted like they bled or we scoped them, we, we used to scope them after their works, and you know if there was a trickle or something, we'd give it to them. But 
you know, I, I, I usually would, would wait a while before putting them on it, and it until they showed a sign or that kind of thing. What worked for you? What worked for me? Yeah, what worked for you as far as with a, with a young horse? That, 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 that you, deal, you, you, you just told us you basically dealt with them as a, individually. Um, yeah. Is there any stories that you felt like Lasix improved or even regressed the horse? Well, the, the horse that I won my first hundred grander with, he wasn't a two-year-old. He was a three-year-old. But he was a stallion. He was by Grey Dawn II. Um, and just an honorary son of a gun. I mean, he kicked me the first day that I had him. I, I claimed him at Sanita and I went in to take care of him and, and uh, he kicked me and uh, could have ruined my family life, if you know what I mean. Um, he, he was an honorary son of a gun. And the first time I worked him, he worked 58 and change at Santa Anita. And I mean, I'd never had a horse work 58 and change, you know, I was pretty excited about it. I knew the horse could run. And, uh, he was, he was just really tough and he wasn't racing on Lasix and he didn't, didn't bleed the, the day that I claimed him. He ran terrible that day. And so I messed around with them a little bit. I ran him in the allowance race and, he made the lead and, and then he folded. He was just kind of a runoff. So I thought that Lasix would help him, that it, it might calm him down a little bit, make him a little bit more relaxed. And um, one day I went to the bathroom and above my toilet was a picture of Vigers, who was by Grey Dawn II, just like this horse was. And I said, you know, this horse runs off all the time. He needs to be taken back. He needs, he needs to be anchored and make one run. So as I'm getting him ready for, for his next race, one morning he goes out and he works three-eighths and 34 and two. And I'm really upset. I'm upset with the rider. I'm upset with the horse. We bring him back through the paddock at San Eden and walk him around a while and so walk, walk back towards the gap. And I told my exercise rider, I said, okay, now take this horse and go straight off and gallop him around and work him another three eights. And the rider, Anthony Cuesta, he used to work for Charlie Whittingham. He, he looked at me like I had five heads. And he, he says, you're crazy. I said, yeah, I know, but do it anyway. <laughs> so he took him out there and um, he worked 36 and two, the next three-eighths, just in hand, just perfectly. And the clockers went crazy because they'd seen 34 and two, which was just <laughs> the morning on the day. And now he works again, 36 and two. Now I got Popo. Remember Popo, the clocker at San Popo and Chuck Russell. Yeah. 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 So they're calling me crazy and they're yelling at me. What are we supposed to give this horse? I said, well, he worked 34 and two and 36 and two. That's one ten and four. Give him one ten and four. And you did a good really <laughs> Yeah, they went absolutely berserk. So anyway, that horse, to make a long story short, he came out in his next race, and Fernando Toro rode him. And I told Fernando, I said, you grab a hold of this horse and don't let him run until the last quarter of a mile. 
I said, and if, if you don't, don't bother coming back because I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so, so Fernando's eyes were this big around. You see that if you see a replay of the race, the horse, he grabbed them and his head is looking straight up in the air when he leaves the gate. And he's dead last and he's holding them back as much as he can hold them back. And he gets the three eights. He can't hold the horse anymore. And he kind of lets out a notch and the horse starts coming. And Terry Lippum's in the way and he, he, he kind of moves his horse out of the way and lets Fernando through. And the horse wins and he pays 9160. <laughs> and, and he never ran for a tag when I had him after that. Um, he went up the ladder and went, went through his allowance conditions and um, ended up winning the Sierra Nevada handicap, grade three, mile and a quarter on the turf. Um, that was my first hundred grander. So it was, it was a lot, a lot of fun. And he was a, he was an interesting horse to train. I cannot believe you pulled a Guillaume. It was about <laughs> four or five years ago at Saratoga. He worked the horse in 52, and then he came back and worked them in 37. Mm -hmm. So the clocker said, which time do you want to give me? He says, well, what about you give me a 7-8 and 129? And I go, how's that? It doesn't even add up. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, I always felt like you had to do what you had to do to get your horse ready. And sometimes you had to try to fool him or trick him a little bit. And um, – you know, it, it it worked in that instance, you know, so you, you can't second guess yourself. you got to have the courage or conviction. We've talked about it here on this Zoom. Barry, um, you you kind of touch upon biases in the book and and I'm not and, and not giving away the all entire book here. You've got so many interesting stuff in here, but uh, about biases, what's your thoughts on them? Well, biases exist for a lot of reasons. It could be the the track is built in a certain way with more banking. It could be the stretch is shorter or longer, depending on which track it is. The run-up is longer or shorter. So there are certain biases that always exist for a particular track. Then there are the daily biases, which may have to do with when it rains. Does the runoff go all the way down to the bottom because there's a high crown or it just stays on the outside? Uh, there's a pace bias. Maybe the front runners, uh, we've all seen days where the, the track seemed to be a jet stream. Anybody who can get to the lead would just keep going. Uh, or maybe anybody that had the rail zooms out of the rail and nobody can beat them. So tracks do change because maintenance changes from day to day. Uh, that's why you can't get behind. If you're doing bias, then I mentioned a couple of different ways to do it in the book. Uh, if you're measuring biases, you can't get behind because sometimes the bias of Wednesday, maybe there was no racing on Monday or Tuesday, uh, and then the track returns on Wednesday, and the track is totally different from the way it was on Sunday. So there's biases depending on if there's days off between. Was there a lot of wind drying out the track? Uh, you have to keep you have to stay up on this. It's kind of like people that bet Greyhound races for a living. The Greyhounds race every three days sometimes. You can't get behind if you're, if you're doing biases. You have to stay on top of it. But sometimes people think there's a bias when there wasn't any. The first two races are one wire to wire by six to five shots. Front speed's great today. Well, the best horse is one. You can't say if they're – you have to actually measure it. You have to keep a, keep a record of where the horses were who won the race and compare it with the – paces of the race obviously 
if you have a race where the, uh, let's say you have a race that goes in 136 and the first uh, six furlongs is 109, you're going to have a lot of plotting closers uh, move into that fast fraction. On the other hand, if the first three quarters are 113 and then somebody comes in the back and it's a 136, that's a different story altogether. So you have to compare that with the pace. It's very important not to think there's a bias when there wasn't any, because that does trip up a lot of players. You have to measure this. And as I said, I mentioned a couple of ways that I've, uh, from handicappers I've met that can measure biases based on where the horses were. Because sometimes, what if a horse was on the outside early in the race and he was inside late in the race? What, or vice versa. You have to have a way to figure that out. So it's worth trying to figure that out uh, because this way, the next time the horse is raised, you can upgrade or downgrade the performance. Dude, what do you think about biases? Well, I, I'm uh, aligned with, with Barry on this. Um, you know, I, I, I always laugh when, when the six to five shots win the first three races wire to wire and everybody, you know, says, oh, speed sticking like glue. Well, it's supposed to stick like glue. Those horses couldn't lose. I mean, they, you know, they were the best horse in the race. So I think you have to really pay attention. Uh, one time the, the inside was really getting fast at Hollywood Park and they were having a hard time figuring out what the deal was. And uh, you know, I, I was going to the races every day, so I, I noticed that the water trucks at Hollywood Park had this arm on them. I don't know if you remember that or not, but the arm would swing out in the water, but the, they run the trucks on the inside. So the trucks were full of water and very heavy and packing down the inside few lanes and the, the arm was to the outside. They, they, it wasn't getting packed down at all. And I encouraged Mrs. Everett to turn the trucks around and go the opposite way every other race in order to kind of like even it up. And it really helped the racetrack. And that, that's the kind of thing that you notice if you're on the scene every day. And, and back to what Barry said about playing the tracks that you know. If you, if you, if you know this, then you can take advantage of it. If, if you're just flying by the seat of your pants, it's it's not going to occur to you but you know you have to watch how they maintain the track and um you know w what exactly is the process that they go through well if i can add once one thought to that if you're not at the track just study the results charts do you work off the results charts if everybody's winning on the inside uh, which their chart maker will tell you where the horse was uh, or the inside posts are winning and the outside horses are spinning their wheels uh, you don't have to understand why just like you don't have to understand why Chad Brown wins so many races you just look the fact that he does win so many races you have to look at results because sometimes we can convince ourselves of things uh, it's better to just look at exactly what the results are of course if you're on the scene that's an advantage for just like if you can study horses body language if you're good at that and you're at the track you have an advantage if you can see where how they're maintaining it and oh they're missing the spot that's an advantage any advantage you can find use it we're all not going to have the same advantages we're all not equally good at all factors of handicapping and frankly uh, to me and i've owned a bunch of, i owned a bunch of harness horses over the years and um uh, to me, horses, I can see when they race. I can see triers. I can see horses not changing leads. I can see that stuff. But standing in the paddock, I see that's a tall horse. That's a pretty horse. I can't tell too much 
until I see them race. I have to see that. Other people can tell a lot from just looking in the paddock. So figure out what your strengths are. It might be grass races. It might be uh, you're very good at uh, having figuring out what trainers can do certain things, uh, subtle things for your particular track involving certain distances. Work with your own specialty. There's a lot of ways to handicap and make money. And as I said at the beginning, I've met a lot of people that do this for a living. Not that there's a billion people doing it, but I have met a number of them to do. And they all do different things. It's not just one way to approach this game. Uh, Ron, uh, you take a quick chance, a uh, quick uh, minute with Jude and Barry. I'm going to go find out where my puppy is. All right, that's fine. I want to throw a, a case in point out at both of you. And this goes back to, you know, one of those rare successes I had because I was paying attention. And I don't know if you guys remember the horse Cracksman that John Gosden had that was really, I mean, couldn't lose a race. Two-time British champion stakes winner. But in between those two wins at Royal Ascot two years ago, uh, he was the favorite and odds on for the Prince of Wales. And you're talking about a million-dollar race that is the feature of Royal Ascot. And he comes into the paddock. And I'm actually paying attention because I'm flipping between TVG and NBCSN. And NBCSN got a lot of rave reviews for how it handled Royal Ascot. But one of the things it did not do two years ago was show the horses in the paddock. And TVG was. And as I'm watching... I'm seeing cracksmen sweating like it's, you know, I, it's like uh, the salesman in New York on a July day who's got to make a commission by five o'clock. I mean, he was sweating like crazy. And so I went completely against him through uh, in, in terms of a win bet, kept him on the ticket for exotics, went to Poet's Word, went off at five to one and wound up winning. And I remember having a conversation with Bob Ike about this later. And, and it was just because I was paying attention. And Bob said to me that he said, you know, it was good work by you. Unfortunately, we all have things we have to do in the course of a day that it doesn't allow us all the time to be watching what's going on in the paddock. So I'm, I'm wondering, that's a really roundabout, humble brag way of asking the question of how do you budget your time, both of you, and prioritize what you need to look at when maybe there are distractions in your life. Bruno's got to chase a dog. I've got to write something and do something else for my other gigs, whatever you guys have to do. How do you guys prioritize when you do have to maybe trim around the edges in terms of your handicapping? I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, I always went to the track by myself. I did not go with friends because I had to study all the pools. I had to see what was going on at the track. Uh, when I did the harness races, you only had a brief time to see the replays. They didn't have TV sh in California. There was not a replay show on at night. So you had to look at the replays after that race was over, or you had to work out a side deal with the video guy. So I made sure I was always in position to see those, those replays. And that's where I made all my notes from. Uh, for There are other people that were clocking all the workouts. It was warm up you know an hour before the race they maybe they try to clock the last uh you know the last uh, quarter of the horse's work to see if he looks sharper or duller than usual you can't do everything you have to figure out what's important for you and then spend your time doing that because if you do it kind of in a haphazard manner and sometimes you look at the factors sometimes you don't you can often get a misleading answer i'll, I'll tell you that from a couple of horses i owned i had one of them that uh, when he warmed up you would 
swear he was uh, headed directly to his grave and he should have been stopped by the ASPCA and the Humane Society. That's how bad he looked on the track. As soon as the race would start, this old guy would put his head down, try as hard as he could. The instant he hit the finish line, he'd just limp pityingly back to back to his paddock. And I had another horse that was a big, strong, powerful looking horse. If you didn't know this horse, you'd say, well, he must be a champion. Well, he was a cheap claimer because that's all I could afford at the time. And uh, he, he liked racing until somebody got close to him. As soon as somebody drew up alongside him, he said, ah, this is about it for me. I'm finished. So you have to know each horse and you have to decide which are the important things to look at. And of course, if you have time to look at it, that's why some people work in teams. One person's maybe looking at the paddock and the other person's doing other things. But you can't do everything yourself. Sometimes it's a question if you're at the track where you sit. Can you watch the the paddock and the warm-ups and the tote board? You have to pick your pick what you're doing. If you're at home, do you have an RTN feed or do you have a TVG feed? What are you going to be looking at? So you have to make decisions based on your budget, the amount of time you have, and your interest. And Jude, let me just go ahead and interject before I uh, I hear your response to this. John Gosden later explained Cracksman's issue as having raced right after Phillies, had raced right before his turn in the Prince of Wales, and he was about ready to be horsing. So that was a fact. That might have been why he was sweating up a storm. But that be that as it may, you could sit there and go, okay, look at the order of races, and you got a bunch of boys coming after a bunch of girls. Be that as it may. Whatever the case, uh, what do you prioritize when you're having to maybe trim around the edges? Well, I like to have my homework done. I, I don't like to go out to the track without having done the work. Um, and I don't know where where that comes from, but I've been doing it my whole life. I mean, I, I handicap. I used to handicap the night before, but now – um, I like to have a cup of coffee or two before I start. And then I look at my PPs in the morning and handicap and, and I'm ready for the day when I go to the track. And so that frees you up to do maybe some of the peripheral stuff that if you're sitting there studying the PPs, I mean, I already have an idea who I like, what price I'm willing to take and all of that. And then it's just, you know, go to the paddock, look at the horses or watch them in the post parade, however you're set up to do it. Um, but I think there's there's nothing that beats preparation. And, you know, as a radio guy and a podcast guy, if you go to do a podcast and you're not prepared, it's going to be a dismal failure. And I feel the same way about your day at the track. If you're if you're ready for it, if you know what you're going to do, you're all right, you know. I think what Jude said is very important, which is why I always handicapped the night before the races and made my late adjustments the next morning based on late scratches, not handicap at the track. Too many other things are going on. Uh, you should have everything finished. What races might interest you? What races do you have no interest in? Uh, you should know that before you get to the track or before you get in front of your TV. Not try to do your handicapping while a lot of the things are going on. And maybe you got upset because you lost a, a nose photo for a lot of money the previous race. Uh, there's the emotional part. You want to have everything down before you start your racing day. And uh, this way you can make late adjustments based on what's going on, not based on your emotion 
emotions or based on, oh, I didn't notice it. Oh, I should have looked at that replay again. I didn't see that thing about the trainer. I didn't, you know, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to be relaxed and prepared. And so what June said, uh, you know, is 100% true. You got to be prepared if you're going to do this. Let's uh, take some questions. Uh, John Wheelahan uh, as a question for Barry. Barry, do you study the jo- j- jockey statistics? Well, it turns out the jockeys uh, turned out in our study are a lot less important than trainers. Uh, one of the surveys we did, we took two different groups of jockeys, one with over 20% wins the previous 365 days versus group number two, which is jockeys with less than 10% wins the previous 365 days both of them riding all the favorites that they ran, which was many thousands of races. Uh, It turned out the ROI was virtually identical to the penny. It didn't matter whether the jockey was a guy who hardly wins or a guy who wins all the time. Uh, The, 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 uh, that include the host brothers. (laughs) Well, the problem when you have, jockeys that are that you know that win all the time and their brothers that makes it even harder but the problem is you can't follow jockeys and expect to make money because the top jockeys uh, they just get over bet it's the jockeys i'd rather bet a jockey that's sixth or seventh or tenth in the standings than a jockey that's one or two because he will kill the price himself and you got to have price maybe the horse should have been three to one instead he goes off at two to one because he has ortiz or he has another he has uh, rosario or another top jockey uh so i try to when i handicap i basically i'm looking at the horses and where the trainers put them and why they put them there uh the jockeys were always secondary to me uh but obviously if i'm an owner i want to have the best jockey i can and when i was an harness owner i always had the top driver at the track as my driver so uh i'm not discounting it but as far as making money gambling the top jockeys as a rule won't help you jude about you when you train and now when you handicap well you know i'm not into possessions really but my most prized possession is an antique ashtray that came from england and it's a jockey, and you lift his cap, and you flick your ashes into his head. <laughs> so that's my most prized possession, and that's kind of my opinion in general on riders. I, I, I have a lot of riders that have been friends with over the years and stuff. But, you know, from a trainer's point of view, you spend hours and hours and days and days and months sometimes getting a horse ready. And then you put the jockey on and he screws it up in a minute and nine seconds. And it's a little bit disconcerting. So I I don't pay that much attention to jockeys. Uh, Like, like Barry said, I I mean, I used to like to use guys that were, you know, maybe the second tier, Um, the first tier riders, you always have to fight for their attention and they, they really don't listen to you in the paddock or, any of that stuff. So if you, if you had a guy that you could work with, I preferred guys that, that were, you know, going to listen to me and, and understand what I was trying to do. And some of the guys that would come out and work horses in the morning. And I, I wasn't that big of a, a, a rider person. I, I mean, I used all the good guys and, you know, uh, some that weren't so good. Any stories for us? Any funny stories? Any 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 funny cool story that I, I do you know who Tony Cacciati is? No clue. He's a guy that um, was a, a workout guru, married to Valerie Harper, and he was a really good guy, and we got along good. And I I trained a horse for him, and we're at Del Mar, and 
I had De Eddie Delahousie on the horse, and Eddie comes to the paddock, and I tell Eddie, I go, look, this filly likes to pull herself up when she makes the lead. So, you know, be careful what you do. And he looks right at me and says, I'm putting her right on the lead. I said, okay. So she wins by 14 lengths, wire to wire, right? I'm I'm ecstatic. I'm glad. Whatever Eddie knew, he knew. And I wasn't going to argue. Went down, got, got my picture taken. Tony was happy, cashed a big bet, and full nine yards. Next morning, I get a call. Who is it? It's Tony. Jude. Yeah, what's up, Tony? Uh, good job yesterday. I go, thanks. He goes, I'm firing you. <laughs> what? He goes, yeah. He goes, the jock had no respect for you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the second time Delahousie got me fired. So if you can get fired with any Delahousie, then, you know, what What? What are, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, jocks are jocks. They're, they're great. Eddie's a good friend. He won my first race for me. He won my first hundred grander. Um, you know, we, we had tremendous success over the years. Only Gary, Gary Stevens had him beat in the Jufeld overall standings. Um, but he rode a little bit longer for me than, than Eddie did. Eddie retired uh, quicker. And, and, and you beat, and, and this is a story that you have told me a couple of times, and I always laugh. You beat Baffert at his game with three-year-olds. Well, I, I beat I beat Cavanier with a with a horse that I was super proud of, um, ready to order. He was he was by order. I had trained his father, his mother, um, planned the mating, fold him, um, broke him, trained him. He made over three hundred thousand dollars and. He beat Cavanier twice, and Baffert still is angry about it. He talks about him all the time to me. Um, but, you know, I, I, there was nobody rooting harder for Cavanier when Cavanier was in the Derby. My horse, unfortunately, was getting ready at San Anita, and he was galloping on the training track one day, and he stepped on a horseshoe that some horse had thrown you know, galloping or whatever, and bruised his foot really, really badly and didn't get to the Derby Trail. But, um, you know, that that was unfortunate. But he was a very good horse, and he ended up winning a Derby. He won the Pomona Derby. <laughs> <laughs> the good story about that is, you remember David Cross used to have the license plate on his Cadillac and said yeah. Derby, whatever it was. Gato del Sol. Yeah, no, it wasn't Gato del Sol. Um um, no, that was great. Um, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he had that, he had that license plate. So I won the promoter derby, right? Next morning, David's out there having coffee, whatever, a bunch of guys he's holding court like David used to do. And I walk up and I said, well, I said, I ordered the license plate. He goes, what are you talking about? You know, I said, well, I ordered my license plate. It's going to say Derby 93 on it or whatever the year was that I won that race. And, oh, he got so upset. Oh, oh, you're, 
you're so full of shit. He walks out. You know, he was, he was uh, all blustery all the time. But the good old Clocker's Corner, Clocker, Clocker Corner uh, 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 beef, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. The, the coffee clutch out there every morning there was always something. I that was one of my favorite things about Santa Anita when I clocked this Clocker's Corner. Let's go to Richard Dorfman. Richard, do you have a question for Barry and Jude? Bruno. So question about bias, a quick little background. I spent a lot of time in the seventies at Suffolk Downs that uh, probably had the greatest track biases of all time. They used to have uh, days where the one post would win eight out of 10 races, wire to wire. And the other two races were won by the two post. And then the next day, Horses would come from 25 lanes out, circling six and eight wide around the last turn. And it all had to do with the, with the tides coming in at the racetrack. It was right, on the, right, near, the, right near the ocean. So um, I made a lot of money because, like Jude was talking about, paying attention to things that other people don't keep track of. You watch six times the replays in those days, and if you had a good beat on it, these were really – obvious biases but um the best biases i found were the ones where there was golden rails where eight out of the ten one wire to wire and horses would make big wide moves and then fade run fourth fifth sixth beaten eight ten but they made a big move which was like running in quicksand at the you know if you're at the beach uh not down by the water and i always found that easy but i'm kind of wondering what you guys think I find it hard when the bias is uh, outside closers, what you look for. When it's golden rail, it's pretty easy to see horses that ran great against the bias. What do you think about the opposite? When it's uh, closers circling wide, the inside's absolutely dead. What is it that you're looking for other than a determined front runner that kind of hangs around for third or fourth? I can I can answer about the tides because I did it at Del Mar. I actually and I think Barry and I talked about it a few times. Um, what I did was I would look at the tides and I would look at the way the track was was in the morning. If that track was black and 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 looking wet, I expected the times to be slower. And as the morning went on and the tide went out and and it dried. The, the track started showing dryness underneath when they cut through it and the times would speed up. So what would happen is I would look in the afternoon and see when the tide was coming in and coming out. I had an, inf- uh, an advantage because I was very close to the guys at Del Mar that ran the, uh, the, uh, they, they did all the work, all the engineers. And they, if you've been to Del Mar, that the inside pavilion, um, when they built that, I, I sat there with, with, with the engineers and they showed me that when they dug that, that, that maybe four feet down to try to lay the cement, water would come through when the high tide came up. So they had to scrap, the, lay in the cement, wait till the, the, the tide was at its lowest point of the day uh, of the week, lay the cement down and hope that it dries before the tide comes up. So if you go through the in, uh, if you go through the Del Mar uh, in, uh, infill pavilion, it's like this because of the tide has brought down the cement over the years and and number one. So then when I would look, when I felt that the ins, the outside was good, 
let's say I had a horse rallying four wide. If the horse on the outside, if he had no horse on his outside, four wide through the far turn, and he would win. However, if there was a, a horse four wide with the horse five wide on his outside, the outside horse would win, the four wide horse would run second, and so on and so forth. So when I would see that, I would try to handicap the races to try to predict who was coming wide. And I'm going to tell you, back in the 90s at Del Mar, I killed it because I was able to tell when that track was going to be dry and then when that track was going to be wet. So let's fast forward to the 2017 Del Mar Breeders' Cup. And Wednesday and Thursday, I looked at the tide charts, and the tide was out very far out, like four to five foot difference than, than in the morning. Um, and, and it was four to five feet difference from the high tide. That's important. Um, so during the Wednesday and Thursday of that day, speed was phenomenal. Everything went on the inside because that track was bone dry because there was no tide. It, it was out four to five feet lower than normal. However, on Friday morning of the Breeders' Cup, that tide at 10 o'clock in the morning when they were starting the Breeders' Cup was eight feet over normal. Eight feet over. It completely flipped. So one of my esteemed past um, uh, protégés was there on his own. He had broken off on his own and we had dinner the night before uh, we were all having a dinner at a restaurant and he looks at me and he goes speed is going to be great tomorrow that inside is so good and i'm biting my blower lip knowing damn well that that morning that kid's going to have a rude awakening because that track's going to play to four to five wide and it's going to play to horses coming wheeling on the far outside sure enough i wrote an email I sent it to all the subscribers. I said, watch for outside. This is why. And I had people go write me back. No, speed is good. Speed is good. I'm like, oh, okay. You, you're, you know, you're, you wait and see. And sure enough, that track played to the outside because I knew that track. I knew when it was eight feet over the, the, the normal, that track was going to be so dark and wet. And I played horses based on that particular assessment. And I think that Friday we had a fantastic day. And if you look at that Saturday day, we did okay. But that Saturday, you had horses that were paying $40, $50. I think um, Ralph, Nix won the, um, Ralph Nix won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile with a horse that never won again. Uh, with uh, a big seven. Uh -huh. yeah. that, that was the, the Philly. Uh, yeah. Caledonia. Um, Miss Caledonia, is that her name? Yeah, Caledonia, Caledonia something, yeah. Yeah, but she won like five wide, and everybody's like, how did she win? It oh. was all track aided because of that way that, that, that so uh, understanding your track and how it reacts, like I know that Delmar was going to react to uh, a dry track to speed. That's why speed always dominated in the early part. At Del Mar, when the when the tide was down, and when the tide was up, all of a sudden, you know, later on in the day, the track completely changes, and people are going, "Well, wait a minute! I thought speed was good." Sorry, that was past tense. You know, it was first three races. So, but but I wanted to chime into that because I had a lot of experience with that. But I always found just a follow up to that. I always found it was easy for future wagers. When the track was golden rail, if some horse ran against the teeth of the bias, pretty easy to see. I found it harder 
when horses were doing those circling to find those horses who ran well on the inside. I was just wondering what the, you guys look for in that circumstance. If I can, if I can jump in for a second, Richard, I know probably when you handicapped, you do what I always did. I always put a style designation on every horse. So I would have them either listed as, you know, front runners, uh, uh, close to the pace types, closer, whatever, just like at the harness races, because harness races is all trips. So that's where I got my start. Thoroughbred races, not to the same extent, but still there's an element to that because horses race each other, not, you know, they don't race on a straight line. Uh, so you have to know what the styles of each horse are, and it certainly is worth your time putting a style designation for each horse. Then as you're watching the first couple of races, if you're seeing two 19 to one shots with no form and they both come on the outside and they run, you know, real strong, uh, maybe there's something going on there. You have to make sure you're watching these races very carefully. You can't, you know, that's why people that do advanced betting uh, to me have no shot. You have to see what's going on because you might make a change in the middle of the card for different reasons. You might have a track that's sealed and the track is very fast at the beginning. Seal breaks up and the time slows down it also could be the opposite thing as bruno says sometimes it starts off the track dries out times get faster you have to watch carefully and not get behind and if you have a style designation uh you can switch your handicapping in the middle if you you know if you observe what's going on but i say this if you're looking at this long term if you're not sure what's going on um you sometimes you're better off passing and seeing what goes on and taking those horses back next time that raced well against the bias and discounting the ones that had an advantage of a bias. Jude. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the key. Like if, if you have a, a closer day, uh, as uh, you were mentioning the, the horses that, that had speed that were on the inside were obviously at a disadvantage. So you want to upgrade those the next time they run. And then the closers that won, you want to downgrade them if they're on a fair track or, or an inside bias track. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, intuitive, I think. I, I don't think you have to get too cute. Just just make good notes. I've uh, got a question okay. from uh, Big Mike. Uh, Barry, what's your experience with Greyhound racing? Uh I'm, I've certainly never bet on Greyhound races, but one time I spent several days with a team of professional Greyhound gamblers in Colorado, and I saw what they did. They split it up. One guy did the sprints. The other guy did the routes. The third guy met, get, did the betting slips and figured out what, how, how to integrate the stuff. And they, the, what they did is this is how smart they were, how ahead of their time they were. Not only did they, they have videotapes of each race, but they put uh, uh, character readers so they could clock each dog individually on a screen. It had exactly what his fraction was throughout the race. So they wound up, uh, one, of, one of the guys was a computer programmer. They printed their own program, which sometimes was similar to the track program, but other times it was not because they allowed for lane bias. They allowed for ground loss on the turns. Uh, they allowed for trouble. And that's how they came up with their numbers, some of which I used, you know, when I did my own numbers. But the Greyhounds, because the races are over so quick, 
and they come back so quick. These guys were way ahead of everybody else at the track. Uh, and they worked so hard that after this, after the season was over, they all had to take a, a vacation because they were so exhausted from working seven days a week for three months straight. Uh, and, and I was fascinated because they came up with their own way of doing things similar to something a, a quarter horse player uh, that I knew for many years uh, did, which is you make your own notes with your own uh, trouble adjustments, your own lane adjustments, your own bias adjustments. Uh, and so you have information the public doesn't have. But of course, the Greyhounds, you know, Greyhounds is fa have pretty much faded away. You can't bet lots of money on Greyhounds. Uh, and there's more randomness as far as, you know, trifectas and things like that, uh, which is where you're going to bet most of your money because it just is not any kind of money in, in some of these pools. Yeah. The reason why I asked is because you mentioned Greyhound racing and I'm a dog man, Wonderland in Revere, Massachusetts, so on. Um, and I've done a lot of the same work in Greyhound racing that um, Bruno does now. However, uh, this was back in the 90, 80s and 90s, and uh, I got out of it while working a full-time job. But I'm mourning the loss of Greyhound racing uh, because as of – Thursday, Florida, beginning January 1st, Greyhound racing is illegal. Right. Greyhound racing is gone in Florida. And, you know, I've been focusing on that and, you know, memories, talking to one of my trainer buddies, and you mentioned Greyhound racing, boom, my radar went up. So thank you, Barry. Barry, uh, Robert asked, uh, uh, is there really – such thing as wet track sires. I don't know. I disagree with that whole premise. I'll tell you why. There's so many different kinds of wet tracks. Uh, whether, is it sloppy? Is it muddy? Is it uh, drying out? What's the condition of the tracks? It's very difficult to come up with good statistics because all wet tracks are not equal. Back in the old days when all the tracks were dirt and it was real mud, it was a different story. But I think these days uh, it's a little difficult to figure out who the – Jude may have a different uh, – you know, and Bruno may have a different idea from me. But I was never able to do anything with uh, wet track sirens because there's, first of all, different types of wet tracks. And second, sometimes the sample sizes are very small, which makes it uh, adds another bit of difficulty into it. Not quite like grass sirens, which are much more easily determined. Jude, do you have anything on that? Yeah, I, I, I believe uh, some sires throw horses that like the mud. Spike stamp comes to mind. I mean, Anytime there's an off track and you see a Spikes Town, I think they should be upgraded. Um, you know, uh, Buck Passer horses, Buck Passer line sires, um, they usually like the mud. Um, you, you know, after a while, you get a feel for the sires that, you know, operate at the tracks that, that you're at. I miss the old mud mark days, like the X with the circle around it. And uh, the, those Hurricane uh, Heck, remember him? Hurricane Heck, Hurricane Heck, Fast Hattie, yeah. and and Ron McAnally had uh, was it uh, Octopus? Was that was that one? <laughs> no. uh, unbelievable. So, so, Jude, you believe in either Mata, the mother is a Mata, the grandfather is a Mata. Yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, I I pay attention to it a little bit. I mean, I don't go crazy, but 
I, I, I do pay attention to it. Let me bring in Jeff Hogg. Jeff, you would like to say a thing about a small world? Yeah, I, I, I certainly do. So listening to everything. So my dad, who, who brought me into horse racing, he was best friends for 20 years with Gil Stratton Sr. And this is going to be a good one. Somebody in the horse racing heaven is going to like this. So I have a, a, a nephew. I'm one year older than he is. And he was a school teacher. And he told me, he's a, he and I were horse racing uh, fans in the early 60s at Santa Anita. We had no money together. We go in for the last race. He said, you know, I have a student who likes horse racing. I said, really? What's his name? Jude Feld. Really? Yeah, he does. Okay, great. So a year or two later, he tells me, oh, Jude Feld is in horse racing. Are you kidding me? Mike Palmer, Jude yeah. Feld was my nephew. He's long gone, big-time horse player. Uh, I love you. Good to connect with you. Yeah, thank you. He, he was a great guy. I, I really uh, – I, I knew it was Mr. Palmer. <laughs> yes. Um, he, he, uh, he, was, uh, he was – I believe my, my brother had him uh, in homeroom uh, back in the day. I'll have to check that with Bob and find yeah, out. Yeah, you did. He did. He, yeah, he was uh, he, he was a great guy. We used to talk horses all the time. Yeah. But sometimes in the middle of class, people weren't too amused. But that's what <laughs> small world, Bruno. Small yeah. world. Let me toss it to Ron. Ron, you have a final thing you want to bring up with a, with our uh, esteemed guest? Um, off the top of my head, no, not not that's not going to uh, end up uh, you know bringing us into the. Uh, I could probably talk into the new year. On a lot of these things, I do note that the Palm Beach track is going to be closing. I think that's the last dog track in Florida that will be closing, and and we're you know yeah it's it's um, that's sad on some levels, but at the same time you could say that the industry has itself to blame, and I guess that's maybe how I'll punctuate it. So I, you know I, I nothing burning, just glad to see Jude again and talk to Jude again, and glad to meet Barry. Barry, please before we go. Would you tell um, our, uh, our guests um, how they can get your book? Well, two easy ways to do that. Either they can go to my website, which is trpublishing.com. Easy to remember because it stands for Thoroughbred Racing, trpublishing.com. That's got all the information. It also has a click, uh, a link to a list of all the tables we have in the book. So you get a pretty good flavor of what we got. It obviously doesn't have the details on them, but it has the subject matter. And that will give you all the information you need as far as ordering, uh, ordering the book. And That's you can look at some of the other stuff I've done. And you, um, and you have also your other book on there too, correct? Uh, yeah, my, all my all my material is there. And if you forget that, or you're spacing out during this conversation, Amazon carries it as well. So, uh, but if you <laughs> order it, if you order it from if you order it from TR Publishing, I'll autograph it to you with your name on it. So, well, Barry, I would love to have you on back in the near future. You're fantastic. Uh, I, time flew by. I can't believe it's been two hours. And I really want to thank you for taking your time out to spend some time with us and talk about uh, what I think is, is phenomenal work. And I congratulate you. Well, thanks a lot, Bruno. I really appreciate it. And nice meeting all of you uh, as well, Jude, Ron, and uh, all the nice people that are on my little uh, Zoom thing here, which I really enjoy. 
Bob, Sean, Randy, <laughs> everybody out there. We got two pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'd love to have you back on, Barry. I hope you've enjoyed it. And um, maybe we can talk about um, some other things that you're working on or uh, just being a guest and then talking horses with us. Is good to me. Is good for Thanks. me. Thanks. Right now we have to be careful because of COVID. So, COVID to me, I just remember all the horses that used to practice social distancing when I bet on them, staying six <laughs> feet behind all the other horses. That's my memory. Well, this way we can keep in touch, um, and I really enjoy everybody that comes on. We got some new people today, um, and makes it for a lot of fun. And everybody is so great here. Um, to me, it's, um, it's, it's a way to get in touch with the world. I don't do too much either. So, and Jude, uh, you do your own little report, uh, a, a little bit at a time, uh, uh, once a week or twice a week. Tell us a little usually, bit about that. Usually just once a week, sometimes twice a week if, uh, tracks opening or somebody requests something, but, uh, the hope, hope is where you can access that usually on Saturdays. I usually mention it on Twitter that it's available and, um, you know, it's, uh, informative and educational and hopefully, uh, you can make it. And, and divine being Pope Jude. That's right. Inf infallible. <laughs> I wish I was infallible. <laughs> Guys, it's been fantastic. Can we get a hand for both of these gentlemen for taking their time? And I really enjoyed it guys. I hope everybody out there has enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to try to work on some other guests coming up, but I, I've loved having you guys on. Barry, it's always wonderful to see you. Keep playing pick. Are you playing pickleball at all or not? Uh, right now, uh, the courts are closed because of COVID. So uh, I'm looking forward to that resuming very, very soon, though. And you're good friends with my, my good friend, Pickleball Phil, Phil Stillman. You met him. Uh, yeah, uh, I met him at the, at the pickleball camp in Palm Springs. Yeah. So I got a pickleball Barry. I got a pickleball Phil. So... <laughs> You know, you're not into pickleball, are you, Jude? No, we, we uh, are talking about building a court out here, though, so that's kind of yeah, good Pickleball stuff. Jude, then. Yeah. No, yeah. we need to get one. Actually, you know, if I play, we can have a team. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thanks a lot. Thanks right, a lot. Thank I, I love this. Thank you. Um, I think um, uh, everybody's enjoyed it. I want to thank Big Mike. I want to thank everybody. I can go through everybody's name here, but – um, you're all, uh, Kevin, did you, let, let me get to Kevin. I got to get to Kevin because Kevin, did you, you didn't have a question for Barry. He's your man. Well, what I was going to ask was, uh, he, the statement about the big lesson being never take anything in the past performances at face value, you know, and that went so well with what Jude said earlier tonight too. Hey, your book really re changed my way of, again, of looking at the, uh, racing form in, uh, in a completely different way in a very good way to reinvigorated my, uh, enjoyment in the puzzle you know, that we all have so much fun with on weekends. Well, you're proving my point. I wrote in the book that this is a game you can improve your entire life. Unlike if you're a basketball professional, chances are when you're uh, getting Social Security, you're not playing for the Lakers. Uh, so I was I was a much better handicapper, uh, you know, when I was 50 than I was when I was 25, uh, because we can get better at this game our whole life. and We can keep making changes our whole life because there's always something new to learn. Unlike a lot of other things where we go, oh, what was that? And what was that again? Now, in, in handicapping, we can use our age to our advantage. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for that comment. I appreciate that. 
I really liked what we've just heard, Ron, and I'd like to do more of these. What do you think? Yeah, and if you're thinking about what, what are they talking about part one, if you only came along for part two, where you found this one, go back one episode, you hear part one. That's the beauty part of these things, so yes. And it encourages anyone who's thinking about, eh, should I take part in these Tuesday Zoom calls? I think you got an invitation here right before your very ears. I think people enjoy them. Uh, we get a pretty good crowd, and um, a lot of return people want to come in. We had a lot of new people this this week, and um, Ron, you're a great part of the you're you're a great part of the of the show. And uh, like I, I said last week, I couldn't done it without you. Well, thank you. And and well, look, the knowledge that you impart on a daily and even minute by minute basis, I just pray that I can absorb even ten percent of it, because you have forgotten more about the sport of horse racing than I will ever know. Well, thank you. That's a really, really nice compliment to make. And uh, I've got a lot to work for you know, to, to earn that comment. So um, so I will um, I'll do my best. But uh, I enjoy it. I, as, as you know, I enjoy that part of this part of the, the industry and this part of the game. So onward to bigger and better things for next week. What do you think? Or for the coming year, absolutely. So look forward to it. Look forward to Tuesday night at 7.30 Eastern on the Zoom call and the subsequent podcast. Thanks, Ron. Have a good night. You too. Everybody out there, happy 2021. Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com. This has been the Racing with Bruno podcast.